Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis 39. Today we uh, intend to cover uh, all of chapters 39, 40, and 41, but our reading will be from the beginning of chapter 39. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we join together this morning and come before you in prayer in this fashion with your Word open before us. And we pray that you would do a work by your Spirit that our hearts also would be open before you. That our eyes would be open. And we pray that by your Spirit you would work in our hearts, work in our lives, work in our body here this morning. We pray that Jesus would be lifted up, that you would be glorified and that you would be pleased to minister to us in these next few minutes. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was texting this week with uh, uh, one of my uh, children who is reading through classic literature right now and was uh, reading Jane Eyre, and uh, she's read it before, and I asked her uh, about that, and she uh, was frustrated somewhat because she's in the part of the book that's not enjoyable. That's the part of the book where the bad things are happening, right? You know how that goes. There have been movies actually that we have turned off before or books that we've decided not to read or uh, get put aside because you enter in and you get to know the characters and then bad things begin to happen, right? And, and you uh, perhaps may think, I just can't take any more bad of that. I don't care to read this for my enjoyment. It's not enjoyable, and so you set it aside. Well, 
the uh, story of Jane Eyre and the story of many other classic uh, stories or movies that we enjoy, that is the case that you enter in, you get to know the characters, and then as you uh, continue through the story, you see things get worse and worse and sometimes even worse. Of course, the reason for wanting to read such a thing, for wanting to endure that kind of experience is because we have the experience of knowing that the, 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 the more it gets bad, the more enjoyable will be the good afterwards, right? That if you are unwilling to endure those down parts, those difficult situations, the crises that are found in the book, then you don't get to experience the joy when the, when the climax happens and things are resolved and, and it's all put back together. Well, in reading through Genesis and particularly the life of Joseph, we are entering that phase. We have met Joseph, and of course, Joseph was a, a very interesting young man. He was a very special young man, but he had these dreams, and he told his brothers and his parents about these dreams, and Long story short, he ended up getting into great trouble with his brothers over this, such that his brothers actually were debating killing him until uh, one of them, Judah, suggested, well, let's don't kill him, let's just sell him and send him off into slavery down into Egypt. Well, this part of the story, this part of Genesis is that section of his life from the time he's been sold into slavery but before his family is going to end up uh, re-entering the picture in a few chapters. I've entitled this message, The Fall and Rise of a Prince. He's something of the prince of the family. His dad's favorite, if you remember, he had that coat of many colors. He had a special endowment from his father, treated in a special way, and such a special way, in fact, that his brothers hated him for it. He's the prince of the family. These couple of chapters we're going to look at his fall and then his rise. I've also given it a, a subtitle, The Divine Setup, because we see God's hand at work. Just as when we read classic literature or a good story, we can see the hand of the author subtly at work positioning this person, positioning that circumstance, positioning this difficulty so that later on all of those forces can come into play into a wonderful climax of the story that makes that story so enjoyable. We see God's hand at work in the life of Joseph. First, we see him falling in slavery in chapter 39. You notice I didn't say falling into slavery because you would think that would be the bottom. He got sold into slavery. That's the bottom. No, it can get worse. <laughs> Sometimes... You'll be in a situation, you think, well, it can't get worse, and it can get worse sometimes, and that's what happens with poor Joseph. And so, what we read in the introduction there, we saw already that he is placed into the household of a man named Potiphar, who was a uh, servant of Pharaoh, an officer of Pharaoh. He was an important man. And God blessed Joseph in such a way in all the things that he did that Joseph was placed not as an outside slave, not as someone laboring in the fields or something like that, but in the house. He was sort of running the house, and Potiphar saw that God blessed him so much that he made him his chief steward, 
handing over everything to him so that the text would say Potiphar didn't worry about anything but what was for dinner. That's how good Joseph was at his job, and that's how much he trusted Joseph. But we read these forbidding, foreboding words at the end of verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Why would he tell us that? Why would that matter in the story? Well, we've, we've read about someone else who is handsome in form and appearance, and that's his mother. She had the same description. Back in 29 and verse 17, we read, Uh, the same thing about her. So there's this family resemblance. He's got a beautiful, gorgeous mom, and he's beautiful and gorgeous. Okay, is that just telling us more about him? No, it's preparing us, of course, for what is to come. Verse 7, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Look at his response. So she sets her cap at him. She's coming after him. He's, he's a slave, but he's some kind of slave, and he's a very important one, and he's good-looking to boot. Verse 8, but he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What a peek into Joseph's character. That his master's wife, the last thing forbidden to him, he's got access to bank accounts, he's got access to everything else that Potiphar had. He was in charge of all of it. His master's wife was the only thing kept from him. He's a young man. He's a good-looking young man. And he resists. He he will not go that route. Interesting contrast with his brother Judah from the last chapter. We saw that Judah was presented with a woman. He couldn't even see her face. He didn't know anything about her. She was sitting by the road, and we saw where that went. But here we have Joseph with a much more opportune situation, and he resists that. And, and in passing, I want us to think about why he resisted that. Why did he resist that? How was he able to do this? How was he able to uh, stand against such a clear presentation and offer of sin and resist that? Why did he do that? Was he thinking, my master is a hard man? And he is so difficult to please, and I'm not sure I could ever please him. And I certainly wouldn't please him if I were to enter into a relationship with his wife. I better fight this fight so that I can have my master's approval, so that I can have my master's pleasure. Is that his wording? Is that his thought? Is that what goes through his mind? No, he says quite the contrary. The speech that he gives is is amazing. He says, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. Verse 9, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he 
kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He's, he's in a position of favor with his master already. Now you'll see there at the end that he, how can I do this thing and sin against God? So he's got God foremost in his mind when he's thinking about this. He's, he's recognizing that to act in such a way, though it's, you know, he's far from anyone who would care, at least from, you know, his church, right? His church family, his, he's, not, he's not at home in Canaan. He doesn't have any brothers watching him. He doesn't have anyone who's going to go tell dad or, or anyone what he's done. He's on his own, but he knows the Lord is watching, and he's, he's very conscious that he does not want to sin against God. But what I want us to see is his, his view and his perspective of his master. Is his mindset, my master is very tough to please, and I can only hope to, uh, to strive with all my might and maybe perhaps potentially please him after I've done so. Maybe I can win my master over. And certainly doing this thing would, would be a strike against me, so that wouldn't help. No, that's not his thought process at all. His thought process is exactly the contrary. My master loves me. He's put me in this position. Look at the privilege that I have. Look at the opportunity that I have. Look at the joy that I have in my relationship with my master. Why would I ever want to sin against him? What motivates his obedience? What motivates his love? Is it the carrot out there in front that he might one day, hopefully, perhaps, if possible, please his master? That's not his motivation at all. His motivation is, my master is pleased with me. He loves me. He's given me opportunity. How then can I sin against him? How then could I do this thing and betray him? Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because in the Christian life, there are two basic ways of understanding obedience to God. Why should we obey God? There is one thought that says, well, the only real motivation to obey God is to earn His favor so that someday perhaps, maybe, by God's grace, in some way I might gain His favor. And that's why I obey. You hear that mentality and perhaps you've wrestled with that mentality yourself. Perhaps you've been in a conversation with other Christians who, who ask, well, if, if, if we're saved, then why obey? What they're revealing is that thought that says the only reason to obey God is to earn points with Him. And some people believe we've been forgiven and we have points with God. By the way, in Christ that's true. But then that line of thinking says, since I have no points to earn with God, why bother obeying? Since the only reason to obey God would be to accumulate points with Him, since I have all the points and Christ has, all, has accumulated them all for me, why even obey Him? I don't need to. See, that's one line of thought, licentiousness. There's another line of thought that, that says, oh no, 
we, we dare not act like that, but, but uh, we better obey so that we can please God in some way, so that perhaps maybe my, my master, who's a very hard taskmaster and, 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 is, and is hard to please, maybe he'll be pleased with me. Well, that, that's legalism. Those are the same types of thought. What is Joseph's motivation for obeying his master? He wants to obey his master because of the love his master has shown him, because he has a clear grasp of that relationship with his master that's rooted in grace. His master gives him all manner of benefits, all manner of blessings, because he's accepted. And Joseph said, there's no way I want to sin against him. When we talk about Christ, when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the Christian life, this is an excellent illustration of something that I've tried to convey and, and continue to try to convey. That we have peace with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when we trust in Christ, when we come to know Him, we receive forgiveness, we receive pardon, we receive the credit of the obedience that Christ obeyed, credited to our account. We're like Joseph in Potiphar's house. The abundant blessing is amazing, incalculable. And some people think, well, if you tell people that, they'll just go and live like the devil. If you tell people that by faith in Christ, they've been, they've been forgiven, their record is clean, they have righteousness before God, they have everything they need for God to be pleased with them forever. If you tell people that, if you encourage people about that, if you remind people about that, they'll just go and live like the devil. Joseph puts the lie to that, doesn't he? Joseph had everything from his master. And what did that do for his obedience? Motivated his obedience. The same way with you and me in Christ. Faith in Christ reconciles us to God so that our sins are forgiven, so that righteousness is credited to us, so that God is just as pleased with us in Christ as He is pleased with Christ. And that motivates us for obedience. How could we ever sin against our Lord? That's free. That, that wasn't the thrust of the passage, but it's too clear an example, an illustration to pass up to help us understand, do, do we, uh, sh- should I as a preacher keep that law hanging over you? Keep the threats there so that, if, well, if you don't, uh, you know, yes, there's grace and, and grace is good, and yes, but if you don't measure up, if you don't keep striving, there might come a day. You see how that, that's, that's hanging the, the carrot out there, that someday perhaps you might please God. Someday perhaps you might get there. Should I do that? God forbid. Mine is to preach the gospel. Mine is to preach forgiveness in Christ and all the riches that are found in Him. And that motivates our life. That motivates our obedience. There's time for warning. There's time for uh, those sort of cautionary 
uh, discussions, and you find those in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But the tenor of Scripture is this. The grace of God motivates our lives. And so we preach the grace of God in Christ. Back to our text. He uh, declares that he uh, is going to stand against her. How could he ever um, uh, sin against his Lord that way? He continually uh, resists. But one day, verse 11, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, you get the location pretty well nailed down three times, you see the word house there. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. So she accosts him uh, even more so. This time she lays hands on him. She's got him by the sleeve. Look at Joseph's response. He left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. He ran off without his coat. He, he had to squirm out of it. They wrestled together. He got away and escaped. What a, what a picture of a true understanding of what temptation is and a, and, a, and a response to temptation that we ought to have. When temptation comes, Jesus said, be willing to cut off your hand. That's hyperbole. But he's saying, be willing to leave your coat behind. Be willing to look like a fool as you run screaming out of the place to escape temptation, to escape sin. And that's what, that's what Joseph does. But of course, as we continue on in our story, uh, she sees what he does and she's got his coat and so she uh, concocts a plan and she lies through her teeth to all the men of the house and, and say, ah, oh, he came to, to, um, to lie with me. He came to uh, to accost me, and, and here he even left his coat, because when I screamed, he ran away, but his coat was left behind. So she lies, she flips the thing exactly around, blaming Joseph for it, and then when Potiphar gets home, she repeats the same story to Potiphar, showing the robe as proof, uh, which um, doesn't look good for Joseph the slave. And so though he's resisted, though he's fled. Uh, you have a, a very difficult uh, story happening for this young man. Potiphar is incensed. He's infuriated, as you might imagine. But he doesn't kill him. He throws him in prison. What a fall. He's already been sold into slavery, but he did pretty well, actually, in slavery. But now he goes from slavery and things get worse. And he gets thrown into prison, going from being the most trusted person in his master's house to being thrown in prison on false charges of sexual assault. Gets thrown right there into prison. But, verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So even there, in the lowest place, he begins to rise to the top, and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. 
What a blessed young man this was. Those circumstances were awful. God used him tremendously that, that even the keeper of the prison would entrust one of the prisoners with the running of the whole place. And God blessed him for it. So we remember back in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, the promise that God gave to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. All the families of the earth be blessed through him. Here's a picture. Here's a, here's a, a sneak peek. It's like a foretaste. Wherever Joseph goes, blessing follows him. Despite the blessing that's come to Potiphar's house because of the Lord's blessing on Joseph, he's still thrown into prison on these false charges. But Peter gives us the divine perspective on that kind of suffering because if we were reading Jane Eyre, if we were reading some other literature, we, we would wonder, and we're left to make our own conclusions, but Peter gives us God's perspective in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures suffering, sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good... Was it good for Joseph to run screaming away from his mistress who grabbed his coat and, and accosted him? Yes, it was good, and he was punished terribly for it. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So we see Joseph falling in slavery, and then we see in chapter 40 his rising in prison. We begin through chapter 40, and you've read this before, and if you've not, I encourage you to read it this afternoon. We're going to cover some themes here. Two of Pharaoh's officers, remember, a baker and a cupbearer are thrown into prison with Joseph. Other significant men, they're put in Joseph's care. He takes care of them. And you know how the story goes, that each one dreams a very disturbing dream, and it's, and it's bothering them so much that Joseph, who cares for them, looks at him and says, you guys are troubled, why are you troubled? And they begin to tell their dreams. Uh, they have these dreams. They've been troubled by them. They can't interpret them. Well, it turns out our main character, Joseph, knows a thing or two about dreams. Has some experience with dreams, doesn't he? Dreams are what got him into this mess in the first place. So he uh, says what he says in, in chapter 40, verse 8. Joseph said, the second half of the verse there, do not interpretations belong to God? Here he is in this pagan land, serving in such a pristine fashion, such an exemplary fashion with such heavy blessing. Here's these dreams, and he says, do not interpretation belong to God? Please tell them to me. And so, in the next paragraph, we have the cupbearer who tells his dream, and of course, being a cupbearer, his dream is about wine and grapes and, and, and a cup given to Pharaoh and all that kind of stuff. And so we read what we do, in ver, uh, starting in verse 12 of chapter 40. This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. So Joseph enters right in. The Lord gives him what the interpretation of this dream is, what it means. Verse 13, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you, Mr. Cupbearer to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. It's going to be a positive outcome. This is going to result in three days in this cupbearer being set free, but he continues. 
Verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that should have put me into this pit. He realizes that though he's in charge of the prison, he's in prison. And though he's doing well, he is there through no fault of his own. He was thrown into a pit back in the land by his brothers. He's been thrown into a pit unjustly here by Potiphar because of Potiphar's wife. So that's the cupbearer's dream. Well, the baker comes to him, and being a baker, he dreams more about cakes and baskets of cakes and things like that. The dream has a little bit different effect. The dream is very similar I mean, you can almost feel the hope, you know, the baker's been standing by as Mr. Cupbearer went first and shared his dream and gets such a great news that he's going to be set free in three days. And, and the, the baker's like chomping at the bit because his dream is almost the same, right? But it's not to be. Joseph tells the baker that God is telling him he will be put to death. He will be executed. He will have his head lifted from him in three days. And so you've got this story of the, uh, the dreams that they have, and on the third day, when the baker is executed, and when the cupbearer is restored, now's the time for Joseph's request to be made. Remember me when you're set free. Remember that I'm here through no fault of my own. Remember that I helped you in the interpretation of this dream. Remember that everything is going super well in this prison because I am here, because the Lord has blessed me. Only remember me to Pharaoh. What do we see in verse 23? Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. What a sad plight. Here's Joseph who's gone down and down. He must have been even farther down in his own heart. The words of Psalm 13 could fit Joseph's situation. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You can almost hear Joseph saying these exact words. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. What misery. He's risen to power, but he's still behind bars. Chapter 41, we see finally him rising to power. He's in such a miserable situation, such a miserable condition. We thought it couldn't get worse, and it got worse. Now there's no hope of him getting out of there. He had one one opportunity to get help from Pharaoh, and that opportunity let him down. And so we see chapter 41, a different way of him rising to power. After two whole years, 
How, how long can you wrestle with hopelessness? How long can you live in hopelessness? Apparently a long time. He's continued there. And after two whole years, Pharaoh begins to have dreams. Pharaoh begins to have dreams that trouble him. He probably has dreams like everybody does. But these were dreams that stuck with him. These were dreams that bothered him. He could not shake him. And, and what's worse, he could not get them answered. No one could interpret his dreams for him. He asked his wise men. He asked his magicians. He couldn't get help for these dreams to figure out what these dreams meant. And in that context, after two years of Joseph cooling his heels in prison, we read verse 9 of chapter 41. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. There was this situation. And he begins to recount how Joseph, when the cupbearer was in prison, when the cupbearer and the baker began to have dreams, dreams that bothered them, that were disturbing, dreams that were surprisingly similar, the only way they could find help in interpreting their dreams was to go to this young Hebrew man who seemed to be sort of in charge in the prison. And he interpreted our dreams for us. Verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dreams seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So he details this dream about cows and corn and the Nile. And he can't understand what it's about. He can't understand what is being conveyed, what this dream means. But God can. In fact, God was communicating with Pharaoh. God was communicating with Pharaoh in such a way as to tell him what's going to happen, warning him about the fact that there will be these great years of plenty, that there will be seven years of such great plenty that you'll hardly believe it, but then after that will come seven years of hardship, so, so hard 
famine so bad that you'll hardly remember the fat years. Look at what we read in 29. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown by the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. God is warning Pharaoh of what is going to happen. The events that are about to transpire, there's going to be great plenty, but don't just revel in your plenty, Pharaoh. Don't just enjoy your riches. Don't just enjoy the, the, the fatness of your larder, but instead be prepared because following those seven years of fatness will be seven years of a leanness that you can't imagine. And so that's the, that's the dream, that's the message from God. And then we see this wise young man who has risen to the top both in the house of Potiphar and in the prison house, risen to the top as an ex excellent manager, one in whom is the Spirit of God blessing. And we read his advice that he gives in, in 33, let, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these uh, good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for good in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land Again, against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine. So Joseph recommends appointing somebody who's really good at this kind of stuff to oversee the whole thing. I don't think he has himself in mind here. But he's saying you need someone to be in charge of this, and here's what I recommend you do. Set aside 20% of all of the produce from the first seven years. Store that up, because there's going to come a time when you're not going to have produce. Use that. Use the storage to pay to eat in the lean time. Now, that's just good advice, isn't it? That's just good fiscal advice that we ought to do. We live in a land of plenty, by the way. We live in a land where we have um, excess sometimes, perhaps even a lot of the time, if we really think about it. And so uh, he's just showing wisdom here. It's wisdom that we ought to have as well, though this is not primarily an economics text. Look what we see in verse 38. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Pharaoh, the pagan leader of his nation, recognizes God's hand upon Joseph. You shall be over my house. Uh, starting verse 30, 39, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. So he's rising to the top once again, isn't he? Only there is no greater stage in the world than the one that he's in now. He rose to the top in one man's house, in Potiphar's house. When he was thrown in prison, he rose to the top of prison. God used him in such a way, God blessed him and gave him such wisdom and skill and success in all the things that he did that he rose to the top even in prison. And that was the setup for him to have the opportunity in this situation to rise to the top of the entire nation. And of course, he follows his plan in the years of plenty. He lays aside uh, as he ought to do. And the nation became exceedingly wealthy. And during that time, during the years of plenty, he was given a wife and they had children together. And it's interesting when we look at those two sons just briefly. Verse 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. And here, here's why that matters, not just because he's going to be one of, the, one of the tribes, but he called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. This momentary light affliction we read in the New Testament. How can Paul talk about momentary light affliction when we know the things that Paul went through? How could Joseph, the one who was sold by his brothers after narrowly escaping uh, being killed by them, he only gets sold into slavery. And then he's falsely accused. And he's falsely, unjustly thrown into prison where he rises to the top again. But even then, he has an opportunity. He helps out the cupbearer particularly, cupbearer forgets about him entirely. He has suffered injustice after injustice after injustice. And at the end of it all, he says, I've forgotten all that. God has made me forget all that. All of that pain and all that sorrow. There's a lesson here for us. There's a lesson that is a large thrust of this passage. God redeems hard times. And you may be going through a hard time. You may be going through an extended hard time where you could start your next chapter with, and two years later, nothing had changed. God redeems hard times, and Joseph's life is an example of that. Paul's life is an example of that. And as we look to older saints in our body who have walked with the Lord for decades, they are examples of that, where they can, they can tell you about bad years. They can tell you about injustice. They can tell you about the hardship, and they can tell you that God redeems the bad times.
He has a son named Manasseh because God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. I think that's a reference to the, the pain connected, the loss connected, the sorrow connected with my father's house. But he has a second one. The name of the second, verse 52, was called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has prospered Joseph like hardly anyone else. So the years of famine then come, and the plan that Joseph had established is put into place. We see in verses 56 and 57, when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses, sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Joseph to buy, uh, to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. So what do we make of that? What are the implications of this passage? Well, there are many implications. The ones I want to draw out today are these. Despite all appearances and disappointments along the way, God was at work positioning Joseph to be the fulfillment of his promise to bless the nations. We saw a peak in, in, in the life of Joseph in serving in Potiphar's house. And we saw a peak of Joseph serving with great success in the house of the prison. Those were opportunities. Those were foretastes of God fulfilling that promise that He had made back in chapter 12 and verse 3 to Abraham that, he, that God would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's family. This is a tiny, tiny little peak. Well, now Joseph comes onto the scene as the, the grand vizier, as the prime minister of all of the land. It's a tiny, tiny little peak at how God is going to bless the nations through Abraham's family, namely, particularly to bless the nations through the work of Joseph. That's a tiny, tiny peak, isn't it? We see other similar circumstances that uh, we read about in the Bible where there are uh, times of, that appear terrible, that are, that are awful for God's people that result in blessing. I think about through the book of Acts. The early chapters of the book of Acts, the gospel was going out in Jerusalem and Judea to great effect. There were thousands coming to Christ, thousands being baptized. The church was growing, the church was being blessed, and it was entirely Jewish. It wasn't going anywhere, it was growing, but it wasn't going until what happened? Persecution set in. You started having people being arrested. You had the apostles arrested here and there for the things that they were doing, whether for their preaching, uh, for their healing, for the crowds that, that were uh, growing up around them, for the fact that they continued incessantly to preach in the name of Christ, to, to preach the forgiveness of sins in Him alone. They began to get arrested. They began to get in trouble. And then finally, you have a man who was taken aside. 
a man who was arrested, who was actually martyred, so that we have the first Christian martyr is Stephen. Persecution is is intense. It is acute. And what happens to the church? This church that had been growing, that had been doing wonderful things, that had been that had been a, a picture of God's grace. What happened to this church when awful things happened? Well, they scattered. They ran screaming. And what were they screaming when they ran screaming? The gospel. And you saw the gospel go from being an entirely Jewish church in a, in a Jewish location in, in Jerusalem and Judea, you saw it scatter to the, to the four winds. And Gentiles are brought in in droves. Why? Because of the hardship of persecution. God was at work sovereignly in that, accomplishing His good purposes through hardship. Does it make you think differently about your own hardships? It should. Or we think about Jesus in the Gospels. I can't imagine the, what was involved in the Son of God becoming man, taking on flesh and being, being one of us, having a, a family who was sinful when he hates sin, having relationships that are that are sinful from the, from the opposite side where, where people would say bad things about him or they would lie or they were just sinful like the rest of us are sinful. And he starts his ministry and, and you have this division immediately in his ministry of you have those who wanted to follow him and make him a king and set him up as, as, as this political hero and you had others who wanted to kill him. This is the king of glory. In our midst, are you kidding me? What injustice? And that continues on through the Gospels, and these awful things are happening to Jesus. And he finally gets arrested, and he finally gets, gets convicted, we could say, in a, in a show trial. And then there he is, being whipped. being hung on the cross. It's hopeless. It's hopeless. Yeah, how the prince has fallen, he, it, it, such, a, such great potential, such great teaching, such great honor is due to him, and yet exactly the opposite is what he's incurring. By all appearances, this is bad. And Jesus, right in the midst of it, he, he sweats, as it were, great drops of blood. The pressure on him was enormous about as bad as it could be. Joseph being, being sold into slavery is nothing. Jo- Joseph being, being lied about and falsely accused and thrown in prison is nothing. Joseph being forgotten and left to rot in prison is nothing compared to what Jesus went through. But the sovereign, gracious hand of God is at work even in that. Because what was being done while our Savior was on the cross What was being accomplished? This wasn't just injustice done to a man. It was injustice. The greatest injustice ever because he was punished in the worst possible way and he's the only innocent one ever. And yet, there he is hanging on the cross. But what's what's God doing? Well, behind the scenes in ways not visible, 
the very wrath of God for sin, for my sin, is being punished in Christ. That Christ in the life He had lived all those years amongst sinful people, though He never sinned, He was obedient to the law. He Himself was fulfilling all righteousness. He, the righteous one, is on the cross bearing the penalty for sin, for my sin, for the sins of all people who have put their faith in Christ. He's bearing it to the fullest in His body, suffering in the worst injustice ever, and He dies. But what had really happened? What had really happened was that my sin was placed upon Him and executed fully in Him. The full wrath of God for my sin was spent on Jesus for me, for anyone who will trust in Christ. For all those who will be in Christ, that wrath of God has been fully spent. And when we trust Christ, that that, that is the gift that we receive, is that forgiveness of all of our sins, that we who could not justify ourselves, we who had no righteousness of our own, now see that our sin is forgiven because Christ has paid for it, and all of that righteousness in the life of Christ is credited to me, to my account, by faith alone. And so the greatest injustice ever results in the greatest, most glorious fact ever, that God in Christ redeems sinners like you and me for our good and to His own glory. Let's pray. Father, as we have worked uh, very rapidly through this aspect of the life of Joseph, we are directed to You. We are encouraged that though our circumstances may actually be miserable, and though we may be tempted to be dejected, though we may bemoan the injustice done to us perhaps, or the consequences of sin perhaps not even our own, that we are enduring. That while we are in the midst of that, while we are dealing with these trials and difficulties, we have been reminded from the life of Joseph that you are at work. And we don't know what those sufferings will turn into. We don't know what those trials will reveal. We don't know what sort of preparation you are using those things to make in our lives for what you will do later. But we are encouraged that you do that. We see it in the life of Joseph. We see it in the life of the early church as you used even the suffering of persecution to advance the gospel, that those actually who were trying to snuff out the gospel and put to death your people were mistaken. And the gospel went far and wide and bore yet more fruit because of suffering and trial and even persecution. And we see in the life of our Savior 
and in the death of our Savior. We see you at work redeeming sinners. And he no doubt faced temptation to feel sorry for himself. Here he was suffering unjustly. It would have been just for others around him to suffer. And here he was, the innocent and holy one, suffering. And yet in that very moment, in that very picture, we see the greatest work of redemption. The final and full and complete work of redemption accomplished for us by Jesus. Evidenced by you raising him from the dead. Showing that the sin that was placed upon him has been eradicated, has been dealt with, and is on him no more. And so you raised him, and you, you, you brought him back to your right hand. And we, by faith in him, get to make that same journey. We make it spiritually now where we get to be seated with him in the heavenly places. And we will make it after we die and leave this body behind, we will get to be in the presence of the Lord, and in resurrection, we will be there bodily. And it's all purchased for us by what Christ has done. And we are grateful, beyond grateful. Words are not enough to say thank you the way we ought to for this life that we have in Christ. We praise you and we worship you in Jesus' name, amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this week and today and throughout your lives. God bless you all. I would encourage you again to be there tonight at 5.30. Look at the sheet that tells you what to bring and uh, et cetera. We will do our level best to be done at 7.30. I guarantee you that we will do our level best don't guarantee you we will be done at 7.30. If you want to pray with someone, there will be a family up here who would love to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed.